Beginning in verse 17, Jude began a series of final charges to his readers, which he addressed as beloved, agapetas. Pastor Jude's use of beloved displays his sacrificial, fatherly love for his sheep. Knowing the danger of the false teachers, writing out of sacrificial fatherly love, Jude charges the beloved to remember the apostolic word and the false teachers in verses 17 through 19. Now in Jude 20 and 21, Jude charges believers to, to remain in God's love. Now within this charge, Jude presents his 12th, 13th, and 14th triads. First, he presents three works of the Trinity. Second, he provides believers with three ways to remain in God's love. And third, he presents three lasting virtues. So to recap, the triads in the book of Jude will begin back at verse 1. We had three actions of God in verse 1, called, loved, and kept. In verse 2, we have three blessings on saints, mercy, peace, and love. In verse 4, we had three charges against false teachers. They creep in unaware, turn grace into licentiousness, and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 5 through 7, Jude gave us three examples of judgment. Israel in the wilderness, the fallen angels of Genesis 6, and Sodom and Gomorrah. In verse 8, he brought three more charges against the false teachers. They defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile angels. Then in verse 11, he gave us three examples of wickedness, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. In verse 12, we were given three descriptions of false teachers. There are hidden reefs, selfish shepherds, and waterless clouds. Three more descriptions of false teachers in verse 13. There are autumn trees, wild waves, and wandering stars. Then in verse 15, we have three reasons for the second coming. To execute judgment on all, to convict the ungodly of their works, and to convict the ungodly of their words. Verse 16, we have three more charges against false teachers. They complain and grumble, follow their lust, and speak arrogant and flattering words. We have, in verse 19, three more charges against false teachers. They cause division, the worldly-minded, and they de they're devoid of the Spirit. Now, in verse 20 and 21, we have three works of the Trinity. We have the Holy Spirit's work of illumination, we have the Father's work of watchful care, and we have the Son's work of mercy. Verse 20 and 21, we also have three ways to remain in God's love, building yourself up in the Holy Faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, and waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, in verse 20 and 21, we have three lasting virtues, faith, love, and waiting, or hope. Now, many commentators see four commands in verses 20 and 21. However, there is only one imperative verb, and that is, keep yourselves in the love of God. Hence, the charge to remain in God's love. The other three verbs, building yourself up, praying, and waiting, are all instrumental participles explaining how we as believers remain in God's love. Now, first, as we consider the charge, let's look at the charge to remain in God's love. The charge to remain in God's love. Verse 20 begins with, but you beloved, and then look at verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, Jude used one of his favorite terms here, keep, tereo. In verse 21, the verb keep, tereo, is in the aorist active voice, which can be translated as to remain in a certain state or condition. 
Back in verse 6, you'd use the aorist active form of tereo, keep, in the verse, and angels who did not keep their own domain. That is, they did not remain in their appointed state. The verb tereo, keep, as used here in verse 21, is also an imperative indicating that you and I, believer, must remain in our present state of being in God's love. God's love is not a license to be lazy. There is much work for us to do. As well, the verb keep and the pronoun yourselves, out to, are both plurals. In other words, listen to this, remaining in the realm of God's love is a corporate activity. No lone believer can remain in the realm of God's love on their own. Listen, believer, you cannot remain in God's love on your own. When cut off from other believers, when cut off from their encouragement, the individual believer places themselves in danger of being deceived by false teachers. Now keep in mind this. When Jude wrote this epistle, his audience was scattered. Scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, etc., etc. And there are times, believer, when we are going to be scattered when we're going to be physically distant from other believers. And in such times, every believer, not just the leaders, but every believer, should make every effort to ensure that though separated by distance, each believer is still spiritually engaged. Remaining in God's love is a corporate responsibility, especially in times when we are scattered. We're to remain in God's love. The love of God is that agape love which sacrificially seeks the highest good of someone else with no expectation of anything in return. God sacrificed His own Son to redeem sinful humanity. John chapter 3 and verse 16, For God so loved Agapao, the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. As the object of God's love, you and I, believer, have been adopted and called the children of God. 1 John 3, 1. See how great a love, agape, the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Jude stated in verse 1 that we as believers are beloved in God the Father. That preposition in denotes the idea of being in the sphere of something or remaining in something. Hence, we are in the sphere of God's sacrificial fatherly love and remain in that sphere. Being in the sphere of God's love is an act of His grace. Remaining in the sphere of his love is the responsibility of every one of us as believers. See, Jude places the responsibility of staying in God's love squarely upon our shoulders. But you, beloved, keep yourselves in the love 
of God. Now there appears to be some tension between verses 1 and 21, between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. However, from God's point of view, there is no tension. Sovereignly, believers are the object of God's love and we are kept by Him. In other words, salvation is not dependent upon our individual effort, but instead God's grace. However, from the realm of responsibilities, those who are saved, you and I, believer, are to make every effort, we must make every effort to live in the sphere of God's love, which is demonstrated by obedience to God. John 15, 9 and 10. I have also loved you. Abide, meno, in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. The verb abide in John 15, 9 and 10 means to dwell or remain in a place which is God's love. In other words, you are a genuine believer if you keep his commands. If you keep his commands, you can be confident that you are remaining in the sphere of his love. Now, in order to remain in God's love, Jude provided three means to remaining in God's love. Verse 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Again, Jude provided three means to remain in God's love. First, we remain in God's love by building ourselves up on our most holy faith. Second, we remain in God's love by praying in the Holy Spirit. And third, we remain in God's love by waiting anxiously for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's begin with that first means. Jude's first means to remaining in God's love is for us to be building ourselves up on our most holy faith. Verse 20. Now that verb, building up on, apoikadameo, is a euphemism for growing spiritually. The most holy faith is the foundation upon which we are to build or grow spiritually. Now note, the term faith in the Greek text is articular. It is literally the faith, te piste. Here the definite article the is in the attributive position providing definiteness to the noun faith. Instead of referring to saving faith, Jude refers to the faith, also known as the body of biblical doctrine called orthodoxy. Now what is orthodoxy? Orthodoxy includes the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture, God as the creator of all things, the triunity of the Godhead, the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, the substitutionary death of Christ for sin, the blood atonement of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ, and the visible return of Christ. That's biblical orthodoxy in a nutshell. Now remember, previously, back in verse 3, Jude charged us to contend earnestly for the faith, for biblical orthodoxy. That is, we are commanded, we are charged to fight for the faith with intense effort regardless of the cost. 
And now in order to remain in God's love, we must build ourselves on the faith once delivered. Notice that Jude clarifies the faith with the adjective most holy. Most holy indicates that the faith or biblical orthodoxy comes from God who is holy. And in the Old Testament, God established a death penalty upon anyone who mishandles or misuses that which he deemed is holy. Numbers 4.15, do not touch the holy objects or you will die. Both Achan and Uzzah stand as examples of those who died by touching that which God deemed holy. Furthermore, Jude states that it is your most holy faith. The pronoun your places the faith in direct opposition to the false teachers frequently referred to as these men in Jude. That false teachers sought to distort sound doctrine meant they were guilty of profaning what God deemed holy and therefore they were doomed to death. Remember the injunction of scripture not to add, take away, or change God's word. Deuteronomy 4.2, you shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it. Revelation 22, 18 and 19. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. You see, the death reserved for the false teachers, for misusing, mishandling biblical doctrine, mishandling the word of God, is not simply physical. It is the second death. It is eternal damnation in the lake of fire. Both Jude and Peter have provided plenty of historical and biblical examples to support this claim's truth. Now that you and I, believer, are to build upon the foundation of the faith harkens back to the words of the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 1, 5, and 7. He said, now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. In your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. Now at the foundation of this change of virtues is faith. Again, faith is not one of the virtues, as Peter does not say to supply it, like the other virtues. This faith is biblical doctrine based on the fact that in the Greek text, faith is preceded by the definite article, te, or the. What this indicates is that all of these virtues find their source in biblical doctrine. In other words, my friends, biblical doctrine is foundational to your Christian life and it informs you how to grow. Again, to remain in God's love, we must build upon the body of sound doctrine found in Scripture. Since sound doctrine is only found in God's Word, you and I must study the Scriptures. Indeed, we must not study some of the Scriptures, but all of the Scriptures. Paul explained to Timothy the necessity of studying all the scriptures in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. He said all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now the reason all scripture, and that is the, both the Old and the New Testaments, are to be studied is because they're inspired by God. That word inspired, theonoustos, means that God spoke the scriptures to humanity. 
Because the scripture is the very word of God. It is profitable. Profitable, ophelia, means that both the Old and New Testaments are beneficial, advantageous, and useful to you and me. The scriptures are profitable in what way? They're profitable to make us adequate. Artios. That is complete, capable, and proficient. As well, the Old and New Testament are profitable to equip us. Exertismenos. Equip us for service. And it is the teaching, the didache, the instructional content of the Old and New Testament which outfits you and me to serve. As well, the Old and New Testaments are profitable to provide reproof, elenco, or rebuke of wrong beliefs or behaviors. They're profitable to provide correction upon orthosis, the restoring of something to a correct position. And they're profitable for training, padia, or upbringing in godly conduct. Reproof, correction, and training are what we do with the Scripture. However, notice that doctrine has to precede them. Practice without a doctrinal foundation, is nothing more than Pharisaic legalism. Without doctrine, along with reproof, correction, and training, the believer will never remain in God's love. Instead, we will be swept away by every wind of doctrine pontificated by any and all false teachers. Ephesians 4.14 As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. Believer, I challenge you, you must make the Scripture the central focus of your life. If you're to be trained in righteousness, if you're to be equipped for service, if you're to remain in God's love, there is no such thing as a strong Christian who ignores the Scriptures. Chinese believers in the underground church have a saying, no Bible, no breakfast. In other words, they will not eat their breakfast until they have feasted on the Word of God. Sadly, if such a saying were enforced in the West, there'd be a lot of starving believers. So the first means of remaining in God's love is that we are building ourselves up in our most holy faith. The second means to remaining in God's love is for us to be praying in the Holy Spirit. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Again in verse 20. Now, contrary to what some purport, praying in the Holy Spirit does not refer to speaking in tongues. Grammatically, the phrase in the Spirit is what is called a dative of instrumentality, which denotes the tool or means by which something happens. That you and I are to be praying in the Holy Spirit implies that we are to pray by means of or under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Romans eight twenty six and 27. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, believer, that we are to pray in the Spirit is in direct contrast to what Jude previously stated about the false teachers in verse 19. False teachers do not 
possess the Holy Spirit. Hence, they are not guided by Him, nor can they pray under His direction. Because we can pray by means of the Holy Spirit implies that we are guided by the Holy Spirit, which in turn means we are ultimately possessed by the Holy Spirit. There is simply nothing in Scripture that allows for a believer to be saved and not be possessed or indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 9. However, if you, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, as an aside, the tongues spoken on the day of Pentecost were known languages, glossa, not gibberish. In other words, the apostles spoke in their native tongue, i.e. Hebrew or Aramaic. The hearers heard them in their specific native tongues. Later, Paul wrote to the Corinthian church concerning the abuse of the gift of tongues. The believers there claimed to have the gift of tongues, but were speaking nothing more than gibberish, which no one understood. Paul squarely stated that such speaking in tongues edifies no one but the one speaking. 1 Corinthians 14.4 One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. Therefore, Paul commanded them that there should be an interpreter present if anyone was speaking in tongues. 1 Corinthians 14.5 One who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edifying. Furthermore, Paul names the gift of tongues as one of the temporary gifts that would pass with the Scripture's completion. 1 Corinthians 13, 8-10 Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Now, several questions must be answered regarding 1 Corinthians 13, 8-10. First, what is partial? According to verse 9, the partial, meros, refers to the sign gifts such as prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. The term partial, meros, refers to something that is part of something more significant. For example, each believer is part, meros, of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now you are Christ's body and individually, meros, part, members of it. In other words, prophecy, tongues, and knowledge are part of something bigger. Second, second, what is the perfect? It is not Jesus. The problem is with translation, not the text. The term perfect, teleos, refers to completion or maturity, not sinlessness. The term perfect also is a neuter noun, which refers to something, not someone. The perfect, then, is the scripture. The gifts of prophecy, tongues, knowledge, had a revelatory purpose. They were the means of imparting and confirming God's revelation to man. And as noted, these gifts are partial, meros, or part of something bigger. Since these gifts are revelatory, they are part of the revelation of Scripture. And now if the gifts of prophecy, tongues, and knowledge are part of revelation, then the perfect refers to the completed New Testament canon. Third, when will the perfect come? Well, since the perfect refers to the New Testament canon, it can be stated that it came no later than A.D. 100. And with the New Testament canon's completion, tongues were discontinued, 
prophecy and knowledge were rendered inactive. So in order to determine what praying in the Holy Spirit refers, one needs only to study the Scripture. There is an unmistakable parallel found in Ephesians 6.18. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. In the context of Ephesians 6, Paul's encouraging believers to pray for the ability to resist the attacks of the devil. Now, in the context of Jude 20 and 21, Jude is charging us to remain in God's love. The first means of remaining in God's love is to be building ourselves up in our most holy faith. That is, we are to grow in biblical truth and sound doctrine. In order to build upon sound doctrine, we must study and seek to understand God's word. This leads to the second means of remaining in God's love, praying in the Holy Spirit. That praying in the Holy Spirit follows on the heels of growing in biblical truth and sound doctrine. It implies that we are praying in the Holy Spirit for help in understanding the Scriptures. Now this ministry of the Holy Spirit, whereby He enables you and me to comprehend and understand the Scriptures, is known as the doctrine of illumination. Jesus prophesied that the Holy Spirit would teach truth to all believers. John 16, 13 to 14. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take a mind and will disclose it to you. See, his ministry of illumination is only available to believers who are in right relationship with with him. 1 Corinthians 2.9 Just as it is written, things which eye has not seen or ear not heard, which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those that love him. 1 John 1, 6, 8, and 10 If we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, the Holy Spirit's ministry of illumination is necessary for two reasons. First, the Bible is a book unlike any human book because of its divine origin. Human thinking alone is insufficient to perceive spiritual truths. 1 Corinthians 2.11 for who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God knows no one except the spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 2.11 And second, human thinking is not only insufficient, it's also unregenerate. 1 Corinthians 2.14 A natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So unless the Holy Spirit regenerates an individual... He or she may learn biblical facts, but they will never know the truth contained within its pages. Even so, believers need the Holy Spirit to illuminate the Scriptures in order to understand them. Pray in the Spirit. So the first means to remaining in God's love is to grow in biblical doctrine. The second means is praying in the Holy Spirit, asking the Holy Spirit to illuminate the scriptures. And third, Jude's third means to remaining in God's love is for us to be waiting anxiously for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Verse 21. Now the verb waiting anxiously for, prostekamai, means to look forward to the arrival of someone or something. Mercy 
is the demonstration of his kindness to those in distress, irrespective of whether or not they deserve it. Romans 9, 15, 16, and 18. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. See, it's God's mercy which canceled the debt of sin through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. See, because of God's mercy, we have a living hope and inheritance awaiting us in heaven. 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. As 1 Peter 1.4 stated, this inheritance will be revealed in the last time, which is a reference to the rapture of the church. Jude used the phrase to eternal life to refer to the resurrected life given to us at the rapture. 1 Corinthians 15.53 For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. Now friends, eternal life is not only a future provision, it's a present provision. From a future perspective, eternal life conveys the idea of living forever. But it's more than that. Eternal life is knowing God and Christ now. John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. As well, eternal life as a present provision is transformative. It changes the nature of an individual from the old creature to the new creature. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And though, believer, you and I receive mercy at salvation, we are to be waiting anxiously for the mercy. That is, we are to hope. We are to be confidently expecting the fulfillment of mercy. This is our hope. This is our inheritance. Hence, believer, you are to look forward to the rapture of the church because then mercy will be made complete. Titus 2, verse 13. Looking for that blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. When Paul states that we're to be looking for the blessed hope and appearing of Jesus Christ, he uses the same term as Jude, prostekamai. By looking forward to the rapture and the reception of our hope and inheritance, we will resist false teachers and we will remain in God's love. And by remaining in God's love, my friends, we will not be ashamed when He comes. You see, in light of Christ's coming, there's a major difference awaiting you and me, believer, and the unbelievers. For us as believers, there is mercy, there is a living, blessed hope. However, for unbelievers, there is no mercy or hope. Only judgment and damnation. Now take note that Jude invoked all three members of the Godhead in this charge. 
We are to keep ourselves in God's love, pray in the Holy Spirit, and wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. The reason Jude invoked all three divine persons is because false teachers oppose the Godhead. False teachers change the grace of God into license to sin. Verse 4. They do not have the Holy Spirit. Verse 19. And they deny Jesus Christ. Verse 4. So Jude wrote to us to contend earnestly for biblical orthodoxy, and one of the tenets of orthodoxy is the triunity of the Godhead. Even today, believer, there are false teachers within Christendom who are opposed to the triunity of the Godhead. One of the more popular false teachings is modalism. Modalism purports that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not co-equal, co-existing persons. Instead, modalism teaches that they are merely different modes of God. Modalism believes that there is one God who can be designated by three different names, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, at different times. But, but these three are not distinct persons. Instead, they are different modes, thus modalism, of the one God. Thus, God can be called Father as the creator of the world and lawgiver. He can be called Son as God incarnate in Jesus Christ. And he can be called Holy Spirit as God in the church age. Accordingly, Jesus Christ is God and the Spirit is God, but they are not distinct persons. The fact, my friends, that Jude invokes all three members of the Godhead with present tense verbs underscores that God exists as three distinct persons at the same time. And these three persons may be distinct, but are co-equally one God. As well, Jude invokes three critical Christian virtues. Faith, hope, and love. Now, Paul told the Corinthians that these three virtues or graces are more significant than any spiritual gift which a believer may possess. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. But now faith, hope, love... Abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. See, while the sign gifts such as tongues and prophecies ceased with the completion of Scripture, love, faith, hope will endure. Faith is belief in those orthodox doctrines of Scripture, i.e. the faith. Hope is the confident expectation in the fulfillment of the biblical promises, particularly the believer's inheritance. Love is the choice to sacrifice one's wants and desires to be devoted and obedient to God. To not be deceived by false teachers. Jude has charged us to remain in God's love. I challenge you to continue to be devoted and obedient to God. Examine yourself. Ask yourself, am I devoted to God? Am I obedient to God? Grow in the faith. Grow in sound doctrine by studying the scriptures. Pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate or make clear that which you have studied. And never stop hoping or waiting anxiously for the day Jesus comes. The day in which you will receive your eternal inheritance and be in the presence of your Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank and praise you for this charge, this charge to remain in your love. I thank you that you have placed us in your love and that you keep us in your love. But at the same time, Father, I see here the challenge for us to remain. We have a responsibility to be devoted, to be obedient to you, to sacrifice everything we have in order to be obedient and devoted to you.
Father, help us to that end. Lord, you've given us three means by which to remain in your love. Help us, I pray, to grow in biblical doctrine. Help us to dig into the text of Scripture. And we pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would illuminate that Scripture to us. And Father, also, keep our hope alive. Enable us to keep our eyes focused on Jesus Christ, who's going to return, who's going to rapture us, who's going to take us from this earth and into your presence in order to receive our inheritance. I pray, Father, that that great truth, that there is hope, that great truth that there is a living hope, will keep us, not only from the wicked ones, but also help us to remain in your love. We pray this in your Son's matchless name. Amen.